0: that everything, for for everything that you are doing through them and ministering to the lives of of those who come to them and for what they do in helping to save lives as well. We pray that you would continue to bless that ministry as they do your work. I thank you for what was shared during our our elder prayer, that, that responsive reading from your word from Psalm 136. Your loving kindness truly is everlasting. I pray a special blessing upon the rest of the service today, upon this message, that I may only say what you want me to say, nothing more, nothing less, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read a good book, coming to the end of that book is a bittersweet experience, isn't it? You know the book had to have an ending at some point. Couldn't go on forever. But it was so good, you hate to see it finally be over. Because what happened? You fell in love with the characters. You mull over how they were at the beginning of the story and how they've developed into the people by the end of the story. And you either love or hate how the story ends. uh, I'm sure there are some pretty strong reactions to some (laughs) some endings of some books. While most other novels weave a fictional story surrounding characters who don't actually exist in real life, the Word of God reveals to us real people in the real world, in real situations, who deal with real faith. There's quite a few chapters in Genesis spent on this man originally named Abram, divinely renamed Abraham. And as you read through these chapters in the book of Genesis, you'll marvel at his faith. You'll facepalm yourself at, at his times of weakness, but at the same time, knowing we probably would have done the same thing in his place. And you'll be astonished at how God has put the pieces together in his life. Today we take a look at the end of Abraham's life. Honor the faith that he had and see how the promises that God made to him continue even through today and with us believers in Jesus Christ. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 25. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. There should be one located in in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis 25. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And we read this, Uh, now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now I don't know if you knew this already, uh, but Abraham, because we only hear about the one in, in Sunday school, but Abraham ended up having three wives by the time he passed away. The first two we've already talked about, Sarah, who was married to Abraham by far the longest. Then there was Hagar, who was given to Abraham to be his first concubine and legally his wife in order to bear a child, and who was banished by Abraham. And this third one that no one ever hears about in Sunday school. And you might be sitting here, you might have heard this for the very first time in your life. And you're thinking to yourself, Keturah? Who in the world is that? Keturah? I've never heard of her. If we do the math and we start out the birth of Isaac, Abraham was 100 at... at Isaac's birth and Sarah was 90. Remember that miraculous birth that God brought about? That would never have happened if it were not for God. If we remember if we remember from that passage when when Isaac is born, then Sarah passes away at 127 years old, which would be uh Uh, 37 years after the birth of Isaac and would make Abraham 137 years old at Sarah's death. Now in our passage this morning, Abraham dies at 175. We'll we'll read that. So Abraham lived another 38 years after the death of Sarah. Now 38 years is a long time, isn't it, to, to outlive someone? Since it was easier to find a concubine rather than a wife, and, and again, I explained this uh, the last time we talked about Abraham, but the difference between a concubine and, and a wife is that the concubine had no dowry to bring into the marriage. Uh, the wife had a dowry to bring into the marriage, and therefore any children that she bore to the husband had legal rights to his inheritance. Concubines did not have, their children did not have legal rights the inheritance that's the only difference between concubines and wives they're both legal relationships uh, with a husband so Abraham decides to take a second concubine as his third wife interestingly enough the name Keturah means perfumed so I doubt it was very hard for her to get the attention of one of the most wealthy men in the in the region. So, similar to having a third wife, I, I, I wonder how many of us knew that before Abraham had even more kids after Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham ended up having even more kids uh, through Keturah. And who were those kids? Verse 2. She bore to him Zimron and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ish- Ishbach and Shuah. Those are the children that. Keturah bore to Abraham. So he had even more kids after Ishmael and Isaac. Only two of Abraham and Keturah's sons are given any note by Moses here in Genesis. Midian and Shua. And we'll get to Midian in a moment. I know this, we're going through a lot of information right now. You'll see what all this uh, means uh, as we work through it. The famous Shuaite, or descendant of Shua in Scripture, is found in the book of Job. While not the Shuhite I'll refer to, Job is a man who is greatly tested by God and suffers unspeakable loss and misunderstanding. You may have heard of that guy before, the man named Job. Probably his greatest loss was the death of all of his children at once when a strong wind collapsed the house they were in at the time. When we're down and out, one of the greatest encouragements for us is when a friend comes alongside us and spends some time with us, isn't it? That's one of the greatest sources of encouragement we have. An invitation to go out for a cup of coffee, a visit to your home, or even just a simple phone call can make all the difference in the world when we're down and out. Job had a few close friends who came to visit him in the midst of his depression. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Zophar, the Namathite, and Bildad, the Shuahite. Thank you, whoever shouted that out. (laughs) In fact, Bildad, the Shuahite, stands out as the one who basically tells Job, I don't know what it is that incurred God's wrath so badly, but either you or your kids must have done something really, really bad to invite this amount of judgment upon you. Thanks, Bildad. Real encouraging. (laughs) You want to have a coffee with that guy when you're down and out? Okay, so that's the, the famous Shuahite here. Now, verse 4, back to our passage here. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanok and Abida and Elda. All these were the sons of Keturah. So we've talked about all the children that Keturah bore to Abraham. Abraham's other son is a man named Midian. And since this is the first time the name Midian has come up, we can presume that the Midianites are the descendants of this son of Abraham. Now, why is this important? What's the big deal? Well, the Midianites, as you read through the Old Testament, what happens? We see that name pop up a lot in the Old Testament, don't we? The Midianites weave in and out of the history of Israel, for better or for worse, all throughout the entire Old Testament. In Genesis 37, the Midianites do business with, ironically enough, the descendants of Abraham's first son, Ishmael, to sell Joseph, who is the descendant of Abraham's second son, Isaac, to the Egyptians as a slave. It's the Midianites. In in Exodus, Moses, a descendant of Isaac, runs away to the land of what? Midian. After he kills an Egyptian slave driver and ends up marrying a Midianite woman. Moses and the Israelites war with the Midianites in the book of Numbers. And the judge Gideon frees Israel from oppression under the Midianites in the book of Judges. So this people group pops up a lot in the Old Testament, especially as it connects to the history of Israel. So here, Moses is setting up right here in Genesis 25 for the nation of Israel as the descendants of Isaac, the origin of their relationship with these Midianites, descendants of Abraham's son by Keturah. So both the Midianites and the Israelites come from the same man, one man, Abraham, just two different women. Didn't think you could glean so much from just a boring list of names, did you? Combined, Abraham, not, not including any daughters he may have had, Keturah, they're not listed here, if he had any, ended up having eight sons altogether, not just the two that we always hear about. But because these other sons were still not Isaac, they were not part of the promise that God made to Abraham, they had no share in the inheritance of promise. Verses 5 through 6. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Now, this is interesting. Notice what verse 6 says. It refers to secondary wives or concubines, plural, right? We only have two concubines recorded for us in Scripture, Hagar and Keturah. While it's possible that Hagar is meant to be the other concubine, making it plural, referred to here, making it plural concubines the plural of ver- the wording of verse 6 leads us to believe that it's not in connection with Hagar the way it's worded here is that these other children are given gifts and sent away to the east makes it more easily understood that the children referred to here do not include Ishmael plus the description of Abraham's additional kids is separated from the description of Ab- uh, of Ishmael's descendants making the two descriptions not connected. If we look back at Abraham's life, both Hagar and Ishmael had been banished from Abraham's household at least 35, and perhaps even up to 73 years prior to this. At this point, it would have been at least 35 years since Abraham had any contact with Ishmael at this point, at the point of his death. So what's my, what's my point? You might be thinking here, okay, get to what your, your point is here. So it looks like this reference is, is only to children born after Isaac and does not include Ishmael. And most likely, these are kids born after Sarah's death. In other words, if the text is understood that way, Abraham not only had a wife named Sarah, all right, you're with me so far? Abraham not only had a wife named Sarah, A first concubine named Hagar, a second concubine named Keturah, but but perhaps even more concubines and even more children that we don't even have recorded for us in Scripture. That's my point. (laughs) Moses and the Holy Spirit are only interested in recording for us what wife, concubines, and children Abraham did have and their significance to the nation of Israel. That's why they're recorded. And that's all we need to know. The important thing to see here is that even though Abraham was leaving the inheritance of promise to Isaac to continue on the bloodline of the Abrahamic covenant, he doesn't leave these other children empty-handed like he did Ishmael. He gave them gifts in order to provide for their well-being while he was still alive. And because they might still pose a threat to Isaac's inheritance, Abraham sends them away to the east. Now, we're going to skip forward to the description of Abraham's firstborn descendants before we end with the closing of Abraham's recorded life. And we'll get to how that connects to our lives. Remember Ishmael, The, the son Abraham had with Hagar? Whatever happened to him? Well, if we remember, he ends up living in the desert with his mother, and his mother finds an Egyptian wife for him. Either his Egyptian wife bears all 12 sons for him, or only his first wife is the one recorded for us. But if you look at verses 13 through 15 in Genesis 25, and you can can skim through this, how many children, I I already said it, but how many sons does Ishmael end up having? 12, right? That's eerily similar to somebody in Abraham's bloodline, isn't it? Jacob also had 12 sons. Ishmael had the same amount of sons as Jacob would end up having. Ishmael would go on to live a pretty substantial life. Verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Abraham would have died when Ishmael was around 90. And then Ishmael would have gone on to live another 50 years before Ishmael died, making a pretty famous name for himself, as verse 18 describes. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes toward Assyria, he settled in defiance of all of his relatives. He he wasn't one that maybe would make it on the family Christmas card every year. (laughs) He was sort of the black sheep of the family. So now we we spent a little time on the descendants of Abraham who were not part of the promised bloodline. Let's end our time with reflecting upon the life of Abraham, the man himself. A man whose faith we can clearly see grow through the entire recorded account of him in Scripture. Verse 7, read this with me. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. We've already touched on this age a couple of times during this message. But you know what? If we go back to the first recorded date in Scripture for Abraham, what number do we get? Genesis 12 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had instru- instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So, what's interesting to see here is that what's recorded for us in Scripture is exactly 100 years of Abraham's life that Moses has recorded for us in Genesis. We have twelve four giving us the age of 75, which is the first recorded age we have of Abraham in the Bible. And then we have verse 7 in our passage this morning, Genesis 25, giving us the age of 175. So that's a difference of 100 years. It's exactly 100 years that we have recorded. If we think about it, Abraham was not Benjamin Button and was not 75 years old when he was born. But I think the reason we can only count back 100 years from Abraham's death is that it's at 75 that Abraham's life truly started. That's when Abraham finally obeyed God fully by cutting off all ties to his former life. And that's when his life started to mean something. There might be something in your life that's either a distraction or outright displeasing to God that is preventing you from living the best life that he wants you to be living. In order for you to expand your horizons and unlock everything he wants for you in your life, you need to do as Abraham finally did, even though it took him to age 75, and chop off all ties to it. Abraham started his life in a pretty normal way. He was nothing special. He grew up in a home with his father, siblings, and half-siblings. He had two brothers and one half-sister that we know of. He grew up in one of the most influential cities of the ancient world. He worshipped his family's gods. He married a beautiful woman and lived a comfortable life looking forward to the inheritance he would receive. There was a time of pain in his family when his brother, Haran, dies too young, leaving his son behind, a man named Lot. But the family is putting the pieces back together. It wasn't unheard of for families in the ancient world to experience this kind of loss, especially at that that time period. All in all, Abraham lived a pretty, normal, comfortable life. Then one day, all of that changed. It wasn't some catastrophe. It wasn't a natural disaster. It was, however, supernatural. It wasn't a visit from the moon god that Abraham was used to worshiping. It wasn't even one of the pagan family gods he had grown up worshiping every year. It was a God unknown to Abraham at the time, yet one who was more real than any divine encounter he had ever experienced. This God did not come to say, you're going to have a good crop this year, or pick these numbers for the lottery drawing later. He actually gave Abraham a very scary message Leave your homeland, and your family, and your inheritance, and go to a land I will show you. I'm not even going to tell you where you're going yet. But then this God tells Abraham, even though you're childless, I will make you the father of a nation. I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing to all the other nations on earth. That's an incredible promise, isn't it? This came completely out of left field. Abraham wasn't expecting this, nor did he really want this. If you think about it, it's not something he would want. That's why he didn't do anything about it right away. If you match things up in scripture, when God first called Abraham, he didn't do anything about it right away. Rather, he continued to live with his father and even moved to another land. He, he, he obeyed halfway. He, he went to another land, but he kept his dad with him. He still lived with his father and moved to the other land, and his father named it Haran, named after the brother that Abraham lost. Abraham continued to live with and probably care for his aging father, while all the while keeping that peculiar message that that God said to him years before in the back of his mind. Then came that fateful day when Abraham's father passed away and Abraham was once again put into crisis. Now that his father was gone, abraham what, what was Abraham standing to receive at that point? The inheritance, Right? His father was gone. So Abraham had all of that inheritance coming to him. A pretty sizable inheritance. One that would make his life comfortable for the rest of his life. But all the while, he's got this nagging feeling that he would be missing something. He could have ignored it. He could have taken the inheritance and kept living in Haran. Or even moved back to Ur of the Chaldeans, to pick up where he left off. By that token, he could have gone anywhere and done anything he wanted. But then that strange God showed up again and told Abraham what he told him years before again. Leave your father's household and therefore leave that inheritance and go to a land I will show you. If you do that, I will bless you beyond belief. Abraham was at a crossroads at that point. Just live the comfortable life that he wanted, that he deserved, that was coming to him, or step out on a limb, take a step of faith, and follow this God he'd only met once before. Going against all social standards and even against human better judgment, Abraham listens this time. Imagine being in that situation. We claim to have faith, but when push came to shove, and if God told you to leave everything and everyone you've ever known to go live somewhere that is scary and completely foreign to you, would you have enough faith to do it? If you, really thought, if you really sat down and thought about it, that would shake you to your very core, wouldn't it? That would strip away everything and shake you to your very core. Make us tear off the onion levels and break down the walls that we've put up and really, honestly, between us and God, critically look at our faith and see how strong it really is and see where it really is, and see who it really is in. It's all well and good to show up to church when it's convenient, or even when we want. It's all well and good to pretend to love others. It's, not, it's all well and good to trust God when we live in America, and we know everything is going to turn out all right. But is that really faith? Are you really, honestly striving to make God's name known in your home, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Would you really, honestly be ready to give up everything for the kingdom's sake? Abraham did not know anything about what the ramifications would be if he followed through with this. He had no clue, but his simple faith pushed him to take that first step towards the boundary of Haran and out into the unknown. How much faith, brothers and sisters, do you really have in your God? How much faith do you really have in your God? I want want us to think about that. I want us to tear off all the different layers and really think about it. I want us to have a crisis of faith. I want us to have a difficult thought process with God, a difficult conversation with God. How much faith do we really have in our God? I want us to cast off all the comforts of this world and and allow God to permeate every corner of our beings. I want him to set us on fire for his kingdom, to give us creativity in how to reach the lost, to give us creativity in how to reach the dying and the hurting of our world. I want him to get us out of our comfort zones and give us fresh vision for taking his message of love and hope out into the unknown. The band Casting Crowns is a song, albeit a really old song. At this point, probably about 20 years old at this point. And what's the first verse goes like this Oh, what I would do to have the kind of faith it takes to climb out of this boat I'm in onto the crashing waves, to step out of my comfort zone into the realm of the unknown where Jesus is. And he's holding out his hand. That's what the first verse of that song says. Abraham literally puts his life into God's hands, truly steps out of his comfort zone, and walks out into the realm of the unknown. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He has no clue. But he knows who does know what's going to happen. This first step of faith sends Abraham down a road that he will never return on again. He knew that he was giving up the life he knew to gain infinitely more than he could ever imagine. To go from thoroughly pagan to Yahweh follower in that instant is an incredible thing. To live out the rest of his life following this God, Yahweh, is is an even more unbelievable achievement. Abraham's faith grew by leaps and bounds for the rest of his life. Sure, he stumbled, he sinned, he made mistakes. Just like any one of us, he lied, he schemed, he took matters into his own hands. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He agreed with his wife in her moment of weakness, but he grew from those experiences as well. He repented. He recommitted his life to God. He trusted God enough to give him the land that God wanted to give him. He trusted God enough to chase after one of the strongest militaries in the ancient world and win. He trusted God enough to refuse an earthly king's offer of riches. He trusted God enough to wrestle with his goodness and justice for his nephew and whole cities of people. He trusted God enough to keep the flames of the promise of a son fanned. He trusted God enough to build altars to God in the midst of pagan Canaanites. He trusted God enough to make god back demands to a local king. He trusted God enough to provide a wife for his son. And he trusted God enough to never, ever live on a piece of land that he actually owned. So at the end of his life, when Genesis 25.8 says this, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Did Abraham live a life of full of earthly contentedness and satisfaction? No, not at all. It was a hard, hard life having to trust God every step of the way. He lived a life Full of heavenly contentedness and satisfaction. He was looking forward to something else that was not on this earth, and this earth could not offer. That's why Hebrews 11:8 8-10 says it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him. He lived there by faith. He was like a foreigner living in tents. He never had an actual home. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. This is why Abraham was satisfied when he died at 175. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations. A city designed and built by God, when you are at the end of your life, could you look back at the point of your life you're living right now, January 24th, 2021, and say, I lived a life of heavenly contentedness and satisfaction. I live my life to the fullest in faith knowing this world is not my home and looking forward to my eternal home and reward? Could you say that? Verses 9-10 through Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth where Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. This says a lot about Abraham. Ishmael did not have to return to bury his father, did he? It had been 35 years where there was no contact between the two of them. If any one of us were Ishmael, we probably would not have done what Ishmael did. Especially after what would have happened to us we don't know the extent of Ishmael's personal faith but we can see here that he knew the extent of his father's faith likewise Isaac knew his father's faith having experienced it personally several times on two ends of the spectrum trusting his father and his God enough to give himself up to personally be sacrificed and in seeing God's providence shine through the bringing together of him and his wife. Both Ishmael and Isaac wanted to honor the life of faith that Abraham had, that their father had, and bury their father with Isaac's mother in the grave that was again acquired by faith. How do people see the sum of your years? how do people see the sum of your years so far? What do they think of when they think of you? Do they see the sum of your years as a process of no faith, of stagnant faith, or of growing faith? Verse 11. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac lived by Beirah Lehiroi. Here we have the closing of the chapter on Abraham's life and the beginning of the next chapter of Isaac's life. Life goes on. And the promise goes on. Moses sets up here for his readers to look forward to the continuation of the promise God had made to Abraham many, many years before. At the end of our lives, there will be an obituary written about us. It will be the last thing written about us that kind of captures what our lives were filled with and what we meant to our loved ones. What's yours going to look like? Will it be one that's filled with faith? One that's filled with faithfulness towards God? Will you be known as one who just stayed in your comfort zone and just tried to build up earthly comfort and earthly riches and just live a normal life? Or will you be known as one who took steps of faith into the realm of the unknown? How are you going to be remembered? what will you be known for? Will you be known as one who lived out a life of faith in complete and unwavering trust in God's promises? What kind of legacy are we leaving to our children and our grandchildren? Because here's the reality of life and death, as we have here in verse 11. Life on earth goes on how are you right now investing into the faith and the spiritual lives of those who will go on when you're gone? What will you perpetuate? What kind of legacy are you leaving? See, our lives and our faith are much, much bigger than us, than our personal lives, much, much bigger than us our lives have the extreme potential to make ripples in other lives even decades from now. So how will you impact the future with your life and faith now, in this very moment, on this very day? Will you be an inspiration and a source of strength of faith to those who will remember you? And decades from now, somebody will think about your life and say, I can make this step of faith in, into the unknown because my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, mother, great-grandmother, uh, great-grandmother did that. I can do it too. What will you perpetuate? Or will you be an obstacle? When they think about you, they'll say, well, they never did anything. They never had the courage to do what God wanted them to do. They never took steps of faith. Will you be an obstacle to the growth of faith to those who will remember you? This is one of those, oh boy, I don't know if I picked the right Sunday to show up today. This is one of those messages. I want this to be a wake-up call. Let this be a wake-up call. Let today be the first day of something new. Let this shake us. Let this really take an honest look at our lives. Force us to do that. Have an honest conversation with God. Let us surrender all of who we are, what our lives are right now, knowing that it will have a lasting impact on all those generations that come after us, for better or for worse, and ultimately will have an an eternal impact it's gonna have an impact no matter what. So what are you investing in? What kind of impact are you, are you making with your life now? I hope and pray that each of us honestly looks at our faith and honestly asks God to stretch us and to grow it in us, knowing the answer will probably not be comfortable. I am 100% sure of that. It will probably not be comfortable but it will be infinitely better for us as children of God. And knowing that God will use that growth to impact generations of lots of people that come after us. So, church, brothers and sisters, go forth from this place and from this day, living a life of faith as we continue to march forward. Everything... things have been shut down for months we're marching forward as we march forward shining Christ's light into the darkness rescuing people from the jaws of the enemy and laboring in the building of God's kingdom right here, right now let us too live a life of taking steps of faith into the realm of the unknown because while we don't know what will await us there we do know who awaits us there. And he will grow us, and he will use us in incredibly indescribable ways for his kingdom. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message, this this passage of scripture recapping this man of faith's life. I pray that it will force us, that it will drive us to take a look at our own lives, Take an honest, hard look at our own lives and our own faith and see what is my faith really in? What am I showing? What am I building? What am I investing in in this world? What kind of impact am I making on future generations? Lord, I pray that this does shake us to our core and this does force us to have an honest conversation with you because your word promises us that when we do that, your Holy Spirit will go to work on all those different areas in our lives and in those corners of our lives. As we surrender everything to you, you will start to go to work on them, bringing all those different areas into line with your will. And you will use us in incredibly powerful ways. And we look forward to that. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.